Welcome to Off Book, a podcast from The Young Vic, where we have conversations with creatives who have recently inspired us with their work here. My name is Daniel, and today we are joined by one of Britain's leading uh, theatre directors, a key figure of the 20th and 21st century, the director Peter Brook. Peter, thank you for coming yes. in. Um, I'd like to start right at the beginning with right. you growing up. <laughs> Was it a theatrical household? Was theatre an important thing for you and your family? Not a bit. My family were purely scientific, both my father and my mother, each in their own way. Mm. My father in electric physics at the time and my mother in chemistry. And for them, they would go once a year, really, to the theatre on Christmas Eve so that the children could go to bed and they would come (laughs) back when the children were asleep and put their presents on their toes in the bed. Oh, wow. So, so, you know, so you didn't go to the theatre then as a child? So I went once or twice. My mother was more of a theatre girl than my father. He and me later preferred the cinema. So I went with him to see movies. Mm. And with mother, I went to see one or two plays. And my first play made me cry, but not for the right reasons, because I was told this is a theatre. The curtain went up and there was a sort of front cloth by an overture play, and it had little paintings of scenes from the play that we were to see. And I thought that was the play. So I burst into (laughs) floods of tears, which was only repeated years later when I went to the local theatre to see some touring company coming in doing Shakespeare. I saw my first Shakespeare, which was Richard III, and there he was lying dead, and I was in a seat in the balcony, and I was horrified to see this dead man lying there, breathing heavily. <laughs> so that's my first theatre experiences. Well, in, in that case then, how did theatre become an interest of yours then? Was it because of cinema that you, you mentioned going Entirely with your Entirely because of cinema. Mm. I w- went into photography and films, and I had a little 9.5mm camera, and I made as many little films as I could, and I edited it. I even developed them in a little bath in our bathroom, (laughs) did all of that, and I wanted to be a film director, and that was my long-term aim until I found that I was ready to direct a film at the age of 18, and of course nobody in those days would take somebody under 50 seriously as a director. (laughs) And I then discovered that the great thing about theatre is that you can do work with so little money But in the end, at that age, I found a tiny theatre where I persuaded the lady who was running it to let me do a production because for her, the investment, which was about £20 at most in the new production, if that, was so slight that she could say, OK, come and do a play. And do you remember what that play was, what that production was? Yes, that was by Jean Cocteau, The Infernal Machine, Cocteau's rewriting of the Oedipus story. And did it go the way you wanted it to go, that production? The memorable thing about that, I can tell you, was that there I invited my father, who was always joking and saying to me, when you need somebody to play a Russian general, call on me and I'll come and play it. So I said one day, come to a rehearsal. So we came to rehearsal and on on the set, there was a little flight of steps as part of the little set that I'd made for this play. And the actor playing Oedipus, I asked him suddenly to faint and roll down the steps some dramatic moment. And we did this, 
and I wasn't satisfied. And so he went, they were about 10 steps up, and he fainted and rolled down. And I said, no, no, I think it'd be better if you started with your right hand here, drew it again. And we went on, I did it about seven or eight times until from the back of this little theater, a voice came, Peter, that's enough, stop it, leave him alone. <laughs> you never, that, from then onwards, I never let anyone into rehearsal. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, who were your earliest um, inspirations on, and mentors then um, in becoming a theater director? Well, I think that my mentor to this day is Shakespeare. Mm. But the physical member in the theatre of those days, the theatre was very conventional. And naturally, as a young person, I reacted against everything. And above all, the West End was so conventional. Middle class, middle class plays for middle class audiences done in a nice way. And the only key word for a theatre was niceness. Everything had to be nice, so if you did a play about some brutal or horrible theme, it had to be found a way in making it nice for what an author of those days, who still just remembered, Terrace Rattigan, mm. said he always wrote for Aunt Edna. <laughs> and that was the key to it. Mm. And in this feeling of revolt, there was one director, there was an extraordinary, dynamic Irishman, Tyrone Guthrie, was absolutely extraordinary because he broke every rule, every convention, had a great gift for doing crowd scenes and made everybody, because in those days one had enormous casts in operas and Shakespeare, there were always this great crowd of people, and he made every small cast member feeling that they were playing a special part. So no crowd scene was just a crowd. Even if they came swarming on, each one had a name, and Guthrie would speak to him and said, no, no, you're the one who's not in such a hurry. And so you, and so each one felt their own involvement as a person. And that and the enormous vitality that he brought were, I think, for me, the great examples. Fantastic. And I read somewhere that um, Joan Littlewood was somebody that you were um, sort of very impressed with as a, as a theatre maker, theatre practitioner. What, what did you take from Joan Littlewood? Well, during Littlewood, it was very, very different. Hers was very, very orientated to a sort of communist theatre, and everything had that. But there was such compassion, such sympathy, and such a way of using unknown people in a new way, and bringing them from her devotion, her love, and her excitement that it was a real example. It was the opposite of Guthrie, but the same thing in a different way. And she made her theatre in the East End hum in the way that the West End could never achieve. And in a way to sort of break out of what you were saying about nice theatre for middle-class audiences, middle-class plays. Yeah, because the way to break out of the middle class is to have a theatre in which there can be a mixture. And for me, the definition of a good audience, and it is still today, a mixture. Mm. Before, if you think of the whole of the 18th, 19th century, the way that theatres were designed was to emphasise the class system. You had the cheapest seats right at the top, then another level of balconies, not so expensive, then the next one, then you came to the dress circle, called the dress circle because people dressed in it and they paid most for it, and then 
the, the pit cheaper and the stalls, the more you went near the stage, the more expensive this had. And this was something that I did everything to revolt against. And that led to all those movements that many of us were feeling at the same time, get out of the proscenium and have the audience. And for me, the most important thing, but I'm afraid even today, that's a battle that's been lost, which was to have the cheapest seats nearest to the front so that the actors are most in touch with people. Even in our theatre in Paris and the Bouffe, we have and always three rows of cushions, which are the cheapest seats, and the young people who want to sit on cushions are the most in contact with the audience. Now the fire regulations have stopped that. Mm. But the principle, that, which is the basis of the Shakespeare theatre, that all around the actors are the people standing who have the, the mixture of people from the street. So it could be everyone from a shopkeeper to a whore to a pickpocket to a crook to a young politician who wants to be part of it. Oh, that's a real mixed audience. And that was the Elizabethan model. And one can recreate it if one tries hard in any circumstances make the cheapest, most available seats closest to the actors, and that gives the actors a completely different feeling than if they feel they are separated because they are the rich people, so many of them who fall asleep, mm. which doesn't help the actors. So do you think that that's an issue which we've, we're on the mend with today? Do you think that we still have that issue of elitism within the theatre, particularly the West End? Oh yes, oh yes. And what can we do about that? just recognise the problem mm. and then it's up to all of us in our own way to see when we can make a breach in it. Fantastic. Peter, I'd like to ask you some questions about The Empty Space. Sure. Um, it was written almost 50 years ago, 1968 was first published. Wow. Um, <laughs> did you know that? <laughs> when did you decide that you had something to say about theatre and that you needed to put it into words in a book? And never. It happened, like everything, by a series of circumstances. I wanted to go to Afghanistan, and I needed money to pay for the trip. And a friend of mine was running Granada Television, and they had an educational program already in Manchester. And he said, look, would it interest you to do four lectures, because we've doing everything to bring education into the community. Would you go to four North Country and Mid-Country universities and talk? And I said, and in exchange we could give you a fee for each, and with that I could buy my ticket to Afghanistan. So I said, okay. So but then I went to these different places, talked and answered questions, and in answering questions, all sorts of things I had to think about, which I'd never really wanted to put into words. And so when it was finished, Granada's policy was to do a little booklet out of these lectures. And the publisher said, oh, I think we could make a complete book if you would now edit it and revise it. And when that was done, I said, now we've got to find a title. And it was my publisher who said, look, in the last lecture you gave, somebody asked you a question and you replied talking of the empty space. That would be a good title. 
So even there, this title, which is is the centre of what it's all about, was in a way came out of the air. And did you go to Afghanistan? Oh yes, indeed. And what did you learn? I learned to suffer more and more from what's going on today, because I had the great fortune of going before the tourists discovered it, because it became quite quickly afterwards, and it was it was occupied by the Russians after I'd been there, and it was occupied by the hippies. The hippie trail across East led them into Afghanistan, because again, nobody went there. But I had the chance of going there, getting, went with my wife and two friends. We went, we got a Land Rover and a driver, and we were told if you go out of Kabul, you have to have royal permission. So I was taken to the palace, sat in an anteroom, met one of the king's ministers, explained that we just wanted to do a tour around the country, and we had this Afghan driver with his Land Rover, and he was going to take us round, and he said, okay, and he wrote a little chit, and with that we could go around the country, which in those days was inconceivable for any outsider to come without royal permission. And it was marvellous because we were marvellously received with great openness and generosity. And in one town I came into, and as the car came into this little town, a man came running up and said, is this Mr. Brook? I said, yes. And he said, oh, I have a message for you. And somebody, it was a very sad message about the decease of a friend who had sent a message from London through a ministry of some sort. But one then saw that with the complete vigilance over any foreigner, I was at once pinpointed and they could send the message out to, to me in the middle of wow. nowhere. Wow. And did that visit inform your future work? Did, did you draw on your Afghanistan experiences when well, making new work? I never tried deliberately and consciously to do that. But I feel that every minute of our lives, we have to take into account that we are being influenced and in exchange we are influencing. And that gives one a real responsibility, a need to listen to what's going on socially, humanly, with the people one meets and with the whole world changing. Always, it's never stopped changing, it'll never stop changing as long as it, it's still there. And at the same time, because you receive it, there's this necessity that grows that you must give something in exchange, that something must come, be digested and then come out of you that is useful to someone else. Fantastic. Peter, can I go back to the empty space? Sure. Um, you say in it that year after year there is rich new material pouring into the cinema, yet all theatres can do is make an unhappy choice between great traditional writing or far less good modern works. Yes. Do you think that's still the case 48 years on? No, no. That's <clears throat> one thing that has, from those days, I mean, there have been great moments, I mean, big moments that led to the founding of the Royal Court and then that same tradition leading through to from the old Vic, the transformation into the current, the young Vic, was a need for each side of the theatre to be renewed. So the musicals took on a new 
from the cosy operettas became this dynamic form of the musical and so much new writing to this day has come into being and particularly in this country where there is still the most living theatre tradition, current I would say rather than tradition, that there is in the world. So is that the biggest change then between today and, and when you wrote The Empty Space, that, that um, emergence of new writing, is that the biggest thing that you can identify that's changed in theatre? Oh no, because there's new writing, but there is new teamwork, new work coming directly out of all sorts of teams working together with a writer, without a writer, directly from their own experience. People, I mean actors, actors and directors together feeling that there is something, a theme that has to be explored. For us this began when we did US when in the height of the Vietnam War, one recognized that we were living a horror, but it was just the Americans' business. Our cousins over there were doing a monstrosity, and we were sitting cosily here, going to the theater to look to the comfortable middle-class plays, and suddenly with a little group of people that I worked with, actors, writers, directors, we shared the same thing, and we came together and said, there is not one single script coming through the post to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre's play department when there were already a lot of excitement, new writing, looking for new writing. Not one writer was even touched enough to say, what is this, this slaughter that we are connecting? Because it was this, like our position today with Syria. No play it wasn't even a question of dared, was sufficiently interested to feel this is our subject today. So we got together and we set ourselves a deadline. We said to hell with art. Who cares about perfectionism and culture and art? We've got to do it fast. And we said so. It was now about the spring. We said by, the, by October, 1st of October, we're going to be ready and we'll announce it. We're, and we're going to investigate and we created something which was a work of total collaborative theatre and of that principle. There have been many, many very fine examples to, uh, and they still are today. So do you think that that's the role of theatre, to have a social conscience, to have a political message? No, the role of theatre is to be able to be what Shakespeare called a mirror held up to nature and nature is the nature world and the human nature world and nobody can make a mirror in which you can see every aspect of it but you can take one aspect and relate it to the whole or you can take ten and the themes are never never ending you can make something about one person's love affair and that can be just concentrated on the sad woes of one single person or within it you can open up to a scene and I've suddenly realized in relation to Battlefield this perennial theme which for me is there we're doing a showing in a few days time at the Institut Francais of Lord of the Flies that in Lord of the Flies Golding saw this theme just children in a little paradise of a desert island and how they become they end by killing one another and 
setting fire to the island, which is the same theme as Battlefield as for Mahabharata. And I suddenly realised that this theme is what makes Romeo and Juliet such a famous play, mm. because the first words of the chorus are two houses, both alike in something in dignity, and you suddenly see this totally illogical thing. Why two houses, just because one house is called Montague, the other is called Capulet, they've got no other basis for rivalry. There are no commercial interests involved, there are no religious or ethnic religions, they're just Montagues and Capulets. And yet the poor buggers have people in the street who are on the side of one or another. And nobody has ever discovered why in Romeo and Juliet there should be anything that makes anyone feel I am for Capulet and I'm for Montague. Mm. And out of that comes, in the very first scenes of the play, the violent clashes in the street and what in the end tears these two lovers apart and leads to their death. And all of that is the same story. And so that's why I said you can take anything you like, a single love affair, and that can be a fellow, or it can be like in, you know, Troilus and Cressida, you start with a war, mm. being caught up in a war. It's always the necessity of the theatre is to be a prism through which many different colours come. Well, in that case, what attracts you to a story? What is a, a play which you want to direct? If I look, uh, listed some of those plays here, um, plays like Hamlet, Marat Saad, um, Maharabharata, um, Battlefield, and before that, The Young Vic Valley of Astonishment, they all seem to be plays which have smaller plays within them, or plays which are made up mm. of smaller stories. Mm. Is that something which draws you to a play? Not a bit. I have no idea what draws me, but I don't want to. I don't want to do introspection. I don't want to describe myself to myself. I really don't care at all. Couldn't care a fuck about that. <laughs> what I'm interested in is to know that around any decision you make in life, you have to weigh this against that. And so at any point, people bring me a play and I look at it and of course I think about it. But all of that is mysteriously preparing the way to the fact that the real decisions happen by themselves. When we did the Mahabharata, I s tried to express this in a very picturesque and romantic way. I had a feeling that Mahabharata, which was the great, great classic of that whole vast continent of India, had never been recognized by the rest of the world. And I had the feeling that one day the Mahabharata woke up and said, I feel that time is now right for me to emerge with all I have to express into the world. And suddenly it found me and, and I woke up. Suddenly thinking of all the things that one needs to study, this is subject in the same way that when we had finished with all that, and everyone was saying to me, now, here's another epic you could do. Why don't you do Homer? Why don't you do this? Here's a great Icelandic epic. You're into epics. And I thought, well, the last thing I want is to do another <laughs> epic. But what is the epic of today? What is the equivalent? And reading Oliver Sacks, I read one phrase where he said that people with these acute neurological conditions that 
few people bother even to understand are like heroes in an epic and within themselves they go through terrible trials crossing he said chasms and abysses in their search for inner peace i thought well this is the mahabharata and that led straight through through the man who in the valley of astonishment so i say these things find their way into you I'd like to ask you about um, your move to Paris and the difference between the theatre scene in Paris and, and the theatre scene in, in London. Did you miss London theatre when, when you moved? Uh, London theatre, I'd got my enormous chance. I managed to have enormous possibilities here and I managed in all that to really complete a big body of work but there was something that I couldn't do and I felt very strongly. I couldn't move out of the British Isles insularity and I felt the moment had come when one had to recognise that all other races and all other cultures have exactly the same importance as our own and this idiotic folly that we're suffering from today of thinking that the white civilization was more civilized than all these barbarians in the rest of the world had to be broken and that I didn't believe in political statements, in polemical statements, making political plays. I believe in doing things by making models that are examples to other people and encourage other people. So I did at once the first workshop with mixed casts of people from different parts of the world, different languages, different religions, and this naturally came about in Paris, where I was given the opportunities to do it within a, a, a Paris festival, because Paris has always been, with all the same closed barriers that there are in every country against foreigners, but Paris prided itself as being artistically a place where people came to work together. And so Picasso found his way to Paris, the ballet, Russian ballet found its way, Stravinsky found his way there, all manner of different cultures meet. And so I did this first workshop there. And then I thought, now I want to continue with this. I can't do this in England because today you could. But in that point, England was it, what is becoming now with the whole issue over the common market. Its strength and its weakness was that insularity. We are an island that is splendid from one point of view and closing the barriers mm. from the other side. That's just the situation today. And that, I felt, as one feels now today, one must find a way through. So having done this in Paris, Gradually, it led to founding the International Centre. And the International Centre of Theatre Research meant that without making any commercial promises to deliver something, we could start working in this way. And for that, I had to get money from different foundations. And it was the Americans in those days were rich enough to be able to support an experiment like this in Europe. And as this gradually took root, we then did our big adventures playing in Iran, in Persopolis, then the big journey in Africa, journeys which we did f through the United States. 
And out of that came a need to find a base. And there, our base, naturally I looked in Paris and found the theatre that's been our base ever since the Bouffe du Nord. And that was a natural process. So it was never, and I suffered, and I do today, from, although I'm now, I think after all these years, I'm fairly proficient in speaking French, <laughs> but it's a, and it's a real wrench for me continually not to be able to work in my own language. And it's very agreeable now, more than that, the battlefield, which is in English, we play it in Paris. It was marvelously well received. People are very open. They love hearing the sound of the English language and they're used to seeing surtitles now everywhere in the theater. But the pleasure of feeling with the actors that every word is immediately recognized by the people who are sitting around us is something very valuable. And so it's a pleasure to come back home. In that case, I'd like to ask you um, your views on what Edward Bond said in the stage last week. I don't know if you uh, saw it, where he said that English theatre is dead. It serves no useful social creative function. And that's why he mainly works abroad. What do you think about that? I don't believe in any generalisation, however attractive it may seem and how satisfying the person. You know, you, get, you have a lot of anger, you've got a lot of spleen, you want to get something off your chest and you make big generalities like that. What I would say is that there's a theatre that's very, at some points, and that was, the, I mean, the big, what, John Osborne alone burst through and opened up in the English theatre because the times were ripe for it and many people then became part of that movement and so one can say that there's a moment of great vitality and Edward Bond was part of that and there from Bond you can go to Moribond <laughs> that's <laughs> when things begin to think so to say that yes things are more alive and less alive but to say dead I think that even a doctor hesitates when he sees a body and take great care saying it's dead can't be revived. That's that's refreshing to hear. Um, your cast then are very international. Mm -hmm. How do you go about finding them and do you learn from each other from your different experiences and cultural well, upbringings? Any minute we're going to start talking with Maria Lynn <laughs> okay. and Maria Lynn Estienne who's been with me really over Oh, I suppose about 50 years by now, anyway, has always had an incredible intuition and memory which enables her to, when we're looking for someone out of the air, to produce merely marvellous unexpected casting and so many of the really outstanding actors that we've had working with her, the ones that she has found in her particular way, so it's a question you must ask her. What I'll ask you, Peter, is um, what are your future projects? What would you like to move on to do next? I, c I can only tell you when they've arrived. <laughs> Peter Brook, thank you very much for talking. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Off Book by The Young Vic. If you'd like to hear more conversations with some of the most exciting people in theatre, subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes. <laughs>